This is the Sideline Distant Podcast, coming to you from YouTube and iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at the Brad Whitaker. I am the Brad Whitaker. A lot to talk about today. Uh, lots of short topics, but a lot to cover. So let's get right to it. I will start with this. Still reacting to the Super Bowl a little bit, and it's you know, it's been a it's taken all week to really digest what happened in the Super Bowl game and uh, what what the New England Patriots did in the first half and the second half, what the Falcons did in the first half and second half, talking coaches, players, uh, fatigue, and, of course, Tom Brady. And uh, the, the, what I've thought about more and more as I've uh, reflected on this game is this idea that the Falcons suffered a historic collapse is, although they certainly collapsed and no team should have any excuse for blowing a 28-3 to lead ever, uh, the narrative is a bit overblown. And uh, I don't want to, I don't, I think you're taking credit away from the Patriots and what they did, even in parts of the first half, when uh, the score didn't necessarily reflect how well they were actually playing, and uh, the key, the key here is fatigue. And a play I want to go back on is happened in the second quarter. Uh, the Patriots were driving down the field, and New England had no trouble moving the ball offensively in the first half. Uh, now the real issue was that defensive front from Atlanta was getting to Brady consistently. And that was hurting the Patriots a lot on second and third down. And uh, they couldn't make points out of it. Nevertheless, they were still moving the ball for the most part. And then on the other end of the ball, the New England defense had no answer for Atlanta's offense for three quarters. They just did not. Uh, but they made the second half adjustments they needed to. But the real reason why the Falcons lost the game was the fatigue on defense and just bad situational football late in the game. And that's about it. I mean, it, it wasn't as... It was, the Patriots had to take certain steps to make the comeback, and the Falcons allowed them to do that, but they made mistakes where they shouldn't have made mistakes, but to blame it all on Matt Ryan or Dan Quinn or Kyle Shanahan is disingenuous at best. And uh, what what we saw in the second quarter, I want to go back to this one play, uh, Patriots were driving down the field, Robert Alford intercepted the ball from Tom Brady, uh, s- snuck under the route, and uh, ran into the end zone for a pick six. It was a big turning point for Atlanta. They took a 21 to nothing lead in the game, and it looked like it was going to be all Falcons, and most people believed that for most of the night. But what ended up happening is Atlanta's defense was exhausted from a long drive by the Patriots. Again, they were marching downfield before Brady threw the pick six, and then they immediately had to jump back onto the field. And what happened on the next play? The Patriots drove down the field and uh, got a field goal. So that Falcons defense was already tired going into the locker room at halftime. And just because you had a long halftime of rest, the Falcons defense, it doesn't mean fatigue didn't play a factor for them. Because it certainly did. Especially in a game like the Super Bowl, uh, where you know there's so much emotion going into it and uh fatigue definitely can play a factor in the second half in that sort of environment but what happened with the falcons is they came out 
and they can that defense continued to get more and more tired. Again, it was it was about two to one in terms of time of possession. Patriots to Falcons. Uh, Patriots had the advantage there, and uh, Atlanta when they scored in the first half, they were scoring quickly. They were getting downfield in just a few plays. Uh, in the third quarter, they did have I think a nine play drive, but that was it. Pretty much the rest of the game, the Falcons' defense was on the field. And that caught up with them very quick. And you have to give the Patriots receivers credit for their conditioning. Atlanta's defensive backs weren't doing a terrible job. They weren't doing a terrible job covering them in the second half. They were just tired. And Brady made some great throws. And that defensive front wasn't as effective. The Patriots made an adjustment. They typically had an extra offensive lineman blocking uh, in the second half, more so than in the first half. And uh, Atlanta's defense just got tired very quickly. And one thing, and, and this happens in all sports, it's very difficult. It's much easier to play from behind uh, than to try to hold a lead. And Atlanta, they haven't done a great job of holding a lead all season. And, you know, there is you have to find that balance between keeping a consistent tempo, a consistent attack, and doing what you know how to do, and clock management. And you see this a lot in the NBA. NBA teams, uh, NBA is probably more about momentum than the NFL is. And uh, when teams teams will build up a 20-point lead, and then they start playing clock management, and you watch, the next team comes back. And I don't think the Falcons wanted to do that. And when you... When you're playing from behind, you don't have many options. So the game plan is kind of obvious. Uh, you're going to have to pass the ball a lot. And New England's running game wasn't working much all game anyway. And they were still moving the ball uh, offensively. So the Patriots, they knew what they had to do, and they converted. Atlanta, they had a number of options. Now, obviously, in hindsight, they picked the wrong options. Uh, but they tried to maintain that aggressive attack because that's how they put teams away all season. You know, they don't let up when they score 30 points. They try to get 40. And uh, that's what they tried to do late in the game. They got in a field goal range and they wanted to put it away because maybe an 11-point lead wasn't enough. Maybe that's what Dan Quinn, maybe that's what crossed his mind. Obviously, it didn't work out. There was a sack and then a penalty. And, uh, you know, hindsight's always 20-20. But the Falcons and Dan Quinn and Kyle Shanahan in that fourth quarter tried to do what the Patriots defense wouldn't expect them to do it's the same thing uh Pete Carroll did on the goal line uh, in Super Bowl 49 against the Patriots Patriots defense wasn't expecting pass it's just Malcolm Butler and Brandon Browner made a great play and the players made great plays and again the Patriots are moving the ball in the first half it's just they didn't do the little things in the first half and the Falcons didn't do the little things in the second half and they were out the Patriots were out coached in the first half and Belichick outcoached Atlanta in the second half because he didn't have many options and he had the offensive players to do the right thing. It's the same way in track or cross country. If you have a lead, it's much harder to maintain that lead because you're trying to conserve energy. You're trying to look behind you and maintain a lead, but you don't want to maintain too big of a lead, so you burn yourself out. Well, the Falcons, they did burn themselves out late in the game, and uh, they had a lot of options. In hindsight, they picked the wrong one, uh, but you can't blame them fully. This collapse, this, this, narrative that they collapsed badly is a bit overblown nevertheless you there are no excuses for blowing a 28 to 3 lead in the super bowl
So, I think NBA fans are getting ridiculous at this point. You can't have it both ways. You can't bitch about uh, superstars taking rest days in an 82-game season with a three-month playoff and then also expect championships to be the most important thing. And and the criticism the Cleveland Cavaliers have received all season just doesn't make any sense, in my eye at least. Because what what's ended up happening is the Cavaliers have their NBA championship. They have the experience. For the most part, they have the same personnel they had last season. It's pretty much the same team. So, uh, and they have Kyle Korver now. And, when, and, and, you know, a healthy J.R. Smith late in the season, a lot of good things could happen. And they've hit that mid-season lull uh, that typically happens for every team in the league. And uh, because of it, it, last night they lost a back-to-back against the Oklahoma City Thunder. But the Cavaliers, uh, I believe, I saw a statistic earlier today that said they were, I think, 3-8 and eight on the second game of a back-to-back. And the best teams in the league on back-to-back nights are like the Rockets, the Celtics, Golden State, uh, San Antonio. Cleveland does not prioritize the second days. And uh, the defensive effort just isn't there uh, because they don't care. And it, and, it, and honestly, it's fine that they don't care because the NBA season is too long anyway. It, I say this on the podcast time and time again. What's happening in the NBA in January and February and March does not matter. It's April, May, and June. And the Cavaliers know they have to be buttoned up then. Now it doesn't really matter. And because of it, they're not really putting a defensive effort out there that they should. The same kind of physical defense that they played in uh, against the Warriors last year in the NBA Finals. We're not going to see that defense until at least the postseason. And this is a real problem in today's NBA. And because it's so top-heavy, and because we have eight teams that make the postseason, home home court advantage is important, but it's not that important. If the Cavaliers went into the NBA playoffs as the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference, if they lost every game the rest of the season, uh, and, and they just phoned it in, and then started playing serious in April when the playoffs come around, they would still make it to the NBA Finals. So when you have eight teams making the playoffs, which is way too many in my opinion, and then you have an 82-game season, which is a long season. Basketball is a physical sport, it is. And there's barely any practice time, especially with these back-to-backs that constantly happen. And it just, players understand what's important. And the Warriors, I mean, the, the Cavaliers have their priorities straight. They just do. I don't blame LeBron for taking a rest day game or two or, or for them to not make a huge defensive effort on the second of back-to-back games. It just doesn't make any sense at this point. Uh, the NBA has to figure out something. Shorten the preseason, get rid of the preseason, shorten the regular season, or, or make it a four-team playoff, make it a little harder, make, make that regular season effort more important for some of the elite teams in the league. I don't know what they're supposed to do, but there's, the NBA fans need to stop bitching about, oh, I'm not seeing my superstar player, and then they say, oh, he didn't deliver a championship. Like... Like Kevin Durant. You can't get mad at Kevin Durant for not delivering a championship in Oklahoma City. You just can't. He he didn't he, he The Thunder have been to the playoffs pretty much every season except for the one except for when they initially moved when uh Durant was still young 
before Westbrook was even there. Westbrook might have been there that first year. I don't know. Uh, but when they were young, but the next year they were in the playoffs. And then they missed it the year Durant got hurt. But they keep making the playoffs. But so what? He didn't win a championship. It it doesn't matter. Like you, NBA fans really need to get their priorities straight on. If championships are the most important things, you shouldn't bitch about your players taking rest days every once in a while. Okay? But if you have players that don't take a lot of rest days, don't be surprised if they get injured a lot or fatigued in the postseason. And then don't get your mad at your players when that happens. It's a long season. This league has a lot to fix. It's super top-heavy, and uh, something needs to be done because there's no parity in the NBA. Uh, the league does everything they can to prevent teams from tanking, and tanking is happening more now than ever. And this idea that the they need this ping-pong lottery to prevent teams from tanking, well, all that does is make the 6th or 7th worst team in the league have more hope that, that they can have the number 1 or number 2 pick in the NBA draft. That's all it does. So then they have more incentive to tank. There's so much going wrong in the NBA right now, and because the media is so driven by superstars and look at this dunk and all that stuff. It doesn't, nobody actually pays attention to what's lacking. And that's real competition. That's a regular season that actually means something. And even a postseason for two rounds that actually means something. And fans need to get their priorities straight in that regard. So a bunch of scouts came out, uh, it was either yesterday or today, uh, and they might be downplaying this because uh, Deshaun, uh, scouts tend to lie every once in a while because they want teams to think they're not going to draft somebody, or they are going to draft someone when they actually want to do the opposite decision. But a bunch of NFL scouts came out and said that Deshaun Watson is not a first-round quarterback, meaning he's he's probably not franchise quarterback potential. He's at the very most, a second-round quarterback. And again, this could be a total and complete lie. We've seen Deshaun Watson and what he's done in big games in college football, and all he's done is step up. All he's done is make plays at the right time and be efficient. Now, he's not the he doesn't have the most size. He's mobile, but he's not the fastest quarterback in the world. He doesn't have the strongest arm, uh, but he's accurate. And his decision-making, for the most part, is good. And when he has bad games, it's bad games that nobody's really actually watching. He's always stepped up on those college football playoff games. And uh, he nearly beat Alabama last year, and we all saw when Watson put the team behind his back this season. Now, everyone in the NFL is always, whenever there's a quarterback coming into the league, they're looking for a prototype. And it's strange because these prototypes are almost always proven wrong. Nobody expected Russell Wilson to be the kind of quarterback he ended up becoming because there hadn't been a quarterback like that that ever existed. You know, everyone... And and it's also strange because people tend to divide quarterbacks among racial lines. Like, if he's a black quarterback, he's probably more mobile than a white quarterback. And it just doesn't work out. There's so many variables going in that you can't really determine who's going to be a great quarterback and who isn't. Everyone whiffed on Dak Prescott for uh, 
what was he driving in the second or third round? I think the third round. And uh, Prescott ended up turning into a superstar. Now, had he not been behind a great offensive line and have Ezekiel Elliott there and the receivers Dallas does, if he was put on Cleveland, I don't think it would be the same thing. But I think if there's a case, as we learned from uh, from uh, Dak Prescott this past season, that efficiency is what's most important. And we've learned this many, we learned this many, many years ago from Tom Brady. Teams that depend on physical measurements and athleticism alone and NFL scouting combine grades, those teams tend to fail. And what, what often NFL teams overlook, they want, they want players that bedazzle. You know, Jared Goff. He's never proven a damn thing in his life, but man, that guy has an arm, and he can throw in the pocket, so therefore, he's going to be an NFL star, first overall. Now, it's too early to tell on Jared Goff. I like Carson Wentz. I think that was probably a good pick, but nobody realized Dak Prescott would be the player he was, but but a lot of it is because of his size and because of his arm strength. Very similar to the criticism going around about Deshaun Watson right now. There are so many NFL teams that need a good quarterback right now. And it, there is no position in professional sports more important than the quarterback position. Obviously. No, it's not even close. And I, if, if I'm the Cleveland Browns, or I'm the San Francisco 49ers, or I'm the Jaguars, one of these teams, I would think seriously about Deshaun Watson, right? And, you know, there, if, if I'm going to, if, if you're going to need to build a franchise right now, now if you want to win right away, you bring in Tony Romo, but if you want to rebuild, or, or you could bring in Jimmy Garoppolo, but Garoppolo could be, could win right away and also be a rebuilding quarterback, but you need to surround Jimmy G with the right parts. Deshaun Watson, obviously, it's going to take a few years, we think. But we, as we saw with Dak Prescott, there's no prototype going into the NFL that you can accurately predict. Every, Jared Goff was a failure this, in his first season. Now, it's too early to judge on him. Ask me in a year or two. But Jameis Winston, he had an okay rookie year. He improved his sophomore year. Marcus Mariota had a better rookie year, and he improved in his sophomore season. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for consistent production and consistent improvement. And in college, we've seen that from Deshaun Watson. And then when we've seen what we've also seen from Watson is when it matters most, he is the guy that gets it done almost every time. And on the national stage, he has been a consistent, efficient, productive player, and that means a lot. Now, he hasn't played in many cold-weather cities, so I'm not sure how well he'll do in those environments. And he played at Clemson, obviously. But this idea that Deshaun Watson... Again, it's very hard to predict who's going to be a great quarterback in the NFL. But to say Deshaun Watson is not a franchise quarterback because of his size and his arm strength... How many times has that argument been proven wrong? Look at Tom Brady. Go watch his combine highlights. He looks, he looks like an insurance salesman. All right. Now look at what he's done. Brady's never had great arm strength 
And yes, he's tall, but he's not, he is so far from athletic. So far from athletic. It's amazing how much we overvalue certain parts of the quarterback position when really all you need is an accurate passer that can throw short to medium passes and occasionally throw it downfield. All right? Dak Prescott doesn't have a strong arm. Tom Brady, his arm is underrated, but he's never been known as a Hail Mary quarterback. We need to stop with this size and arm strength bullshit. Look at what Russell Wilson has managed to do. Look at his college stats, all right? It's amazing he fell as far as he fell in the NFL draft. I think Deshaun Watson is a worthy gamble, especially with all these teams that need franchise NFL quarterbacks. So I, I have no idea what's going on in the Chicago Bulls front office, but they've made a lot of terrible decisions in the last two or three seasons. And, you know, I thought they made the right choice by trading away Derrick Rose. I think he was a distraction. I think he dribbled off the shot clock too much. And I thought building around Jimmy Butler made a lot of sense. I'm a big fan of Jimmy Butler, by the way. He's a great defensive player, always finds ways to improve, and uh he, He's just, he's just the kind of player you want to build around it with an organization. But then this offseason, they brought in Dwayne Wade for God knows what reason, and then Rajon Rondo. And that was even more unusual of a decision. So, and then this thing comes out that the Chicago Bulls front office might be spying on their players. I don't know what that's all about. I think D. Wade and Jimmy Butler sat out a game in protest. Like, this is be- slowly becoming the most dysfunctional franchise in the NBA. And they need to seriously think about rebuilding. And they have some assets, the Bulls do, but they're obvi- obviously their number one asset is Jimmy Butler, and you need to be very hesitant about trading him away. But there is one team, a team that, I hold in high regard that I think they should trade, that is the only team with enough assets to trade for. And many argue that the Boston Celtics and their overload of assets is one of the most overrated things in the NBA. I don't believe so. Uh, one, because the Brooklyn Nets are terrible and you, they're going to have uh, the worst record in the NBA at the end of the season which means, at the very worst, they're going to have the number four pick in the NBA draft in what is expected to be a very deep draft class. So that pick is very valuable, not to mention they have Brooklyn's picks next year and a deep bench. Now, if I were the Chicago Bulls, I would think seriously about that. Now, I don't think Dwayne Wade is as old as the media narrative goes. I think he is still has two to three great seasons left in him, and the Bulls have him, and you don't want to waste that. You don't. And it was the front office's decision to bring in Dwayne Wade. I didn't necessarily agree with it, but they brought him in. And, you know, Wade and Jimmy Butler, I'm not sure they really complement each other. I'm not even sure Wade and LeBron really complemented each other much. So here's what I would do if I were Chicago. First of all, bringing in Rondo was a mistake. I don't know what you do with him, but at the end of the season, he needs to go. But... I think the Celtics have the pieces to help Chicago uh, build around the what they have right now. And they brought in a lot of assets uh, when they traded away Derrick Rose. 
I think the Celtics have the pieces, and this is what I would do if I were Chicago. Now, the Celtics, are I, I don't think they want to trade both of their Brooklyn picks away. And they might, if it's straight up, two, two of Brooklyn's picks for Jimmy Butler, maybe they would do that. But here's something I think, I don't think Chicago would benefit that much from it. You don't want to rebuild around Dwayne Wade if you don't have, I mean, Dwayne Wade, again, only has a couple good seasons left in him, probably. So you need to bring in some great role players to surround him. So what do you do? And I know this narrative of building around Dwayne Wade sounds strange when you need to build build around Jimmy Butler, but if bringing in Dwayne Wade, that's the decision you made. And you you can't trade him. He he's going to be stuck in Chicago. So really your only option if you really want to get this thing working is to trade away Jimmy Butler. And I think the Celtics, you have a shot at Lonzo Ball or that, that kid from Washington everyone likes. All right? Try to get that number one pick. Here's what I would do if I were the Chicago Bulls. I would ask for Boston's pick, which could bring in a potential NBA superstar. And then I would bring in someone like Marcus Smart. And then to replace Jimmy Butler, you, you don't want to lose his defensive presence, so you bring in Jay Crowder, who is one of the most underrated defensive players in the NBA. I've been watching Jay Crowder now for two year, or three seasons, and he's great. He's great. If there's anyone that can fill Butler's role defensively, it's Jay Crowder. And then you have Dwayne Wade out there. Marcus Smart, Dwayne Wade, Jay Crowder, all the pieces that Chicago has around them, that makes a lot of sense. And then the Celtics get that additional superstar that they need. They don't lose much from getting rid of Jay Crowder because they brought in Jimmy Butler. And then offensively, Butler's great. And then you have Harford and Isaiah, and suddenly both teams benefit from this kind of a deal. I think that would make a lot of sense even before the trade deadline because the Bulls, I mean, they have a shot at the postseason, but they're not getting out of the first round. And I, again, I don't understand why Dwayne Wade, he, he wanted to stick it to the Miami Heat over a few million dollars, but what he sacrificed was a winning culture, an organization that has their shit together. And now he's living in his hometown. Great. But he's on a team that spies on their players. That was a terrible decision by Dwayne Wade to go to Chicago. And I don't even think Chicago really made the right decision bringing him in. But now you're going to have to figure out how to do this. And I think this is the only way Chicago, they don't have to go into full tanking rebuilding mode. But this is the only way if they want to contend, you might as well trade Jimmy Butler for Boston's assets and then try to put pieces around Dwayne Wade to succeed for this season and next season and uh, I'm not sure Hoiberg's working out, but it's still too early to tell on him. So that's it for today's podcast. I'll be back next week, back on video. Uh, NBA season heating up. There'll be a lot more to talk about. Until then, I bid you adieu.